Thank you, Dr. Long. Uh, today is, uh, well, we're celebrating this week in the 4th of July holiday. Um, and I hadn't mentioned it up until this point because I knew Dr. Long was going to be singing that song. And so before we go to God's Word, I think it's appropriate for us to go to the Lord in just a, a time of prayer uh, for our nation, uh, but also just a reminder of who we are uh, as God's people uh, as we prepare to go to His Word. So let's pray together. Uh, Father God, we are so thankful uh, for the place where you have put us, uh, a place where we are able to enjoy freedom, uh, freedom to come into your house, freedom to worship, freedom to, to go to our jobs, freedom to live, freedom to not be afraid of what uh, might happen to us from day to day or moment to moment. Uh, what a blessing it is to be able to have been raised in this place uh, with the things that we have, things that would uh, make most people uh, rejoice because they are, are so, we have been blessed so mightily. Uh, and Lord, we are, are so thankful for those who have fought and who have died to give us the freedom that we now enjoy. Uh, and so, Father, we're, just, we're so thankful this morning. And yet at the same time, we look out at our nation and, Lord, we see uh, all of the difficulties that are in front of us. Uh, we see the, the way that we are as a nation, turning away from you in so many areas, the way that we mock you, the way that, that your worship is taken for granted, the way that your name is taken in vain, uh, the way that we choose to, to go in the direction that is completely opposite of the way that you would have us to go. We see our leaders and so many of them support us in that direction. Uh, and so as Dr. Long ha has sung, we as your people now come before you and we submit ourselves to you. We humble ourselves before you. And we cry out to you for mercy. We cry out to you that you would give us godly leaders who want to lead us in the way that you would have us to go. And Lord, even as we see those freedoms that we have enjoyed, even as we see them begin to, to slip away, Lord, we pray that you would preserve us, that, that you would act on behalf of your people. Lord, be with our nation. Be with our leaders. And yet, Father, we pause in these moments as your people, as a people who are a part not of this world, not of this nation, not of this kingdom, but a people who are a part of a heavenly kingdom. And though we are uncertain about what's coming, though we, don't, we look out and we cry out, as we're going to see today, we cry out, How long, O Lord? We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are in control and that you are on the throne. And so while we may be concerned for what the future may hold, Lord, we can rest in your sure grip, in your sure might. And we pray that you would lead us as your people to live as your people in a nation that may be falling away from you. Help us to hold up the name of Christ. Help us to hold up God's law so that people see how beautiful he is and people see how worthy of following he is. Lord, if we want to see change out in the world, it's not going to come through our efforts, through our means. It's going to come as people's hearts are changed by the gospel. And so, Lord, may we go out with it in our lives and in our jobs and in our works 
Lord, we pray that through your church that this nation would be transformed. We pray that you would give us the courage to to live in this place as you have called us to live. And we thank you that while freedoms may be pulled away here, we have a freedom that is everlasting, a freedom that has been bought by the blood of Christ. And it's in that freedom we now come to your word. It's in that freedom we now hear from, from a prophet who was crying out with these same concerns. And Lord, we pray that that you would lead us in your word, that you would guide us, that you would open up the eyes of our hearts so that we might hear from you. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, turn with me back to the Old Testament, uh, back to the minor prophets, back to the little book of Habakkuk, uh, where we will continue what we began last week in considering the mystery of God's sovereignty. And specifically today... Uh, We want to see the prophet wrestling with the mystery that he expressed last week. And we want to consider how God's people can persevere, how they can keep going even through the confusion, even through the unknown of what this world and what this life may throw at us. I want to understand that, that though we may not understand everything that God is doing, that though we may not be able to, to pinpoint it all, it does not change the fact that He is God, that He is in control, and that He does everything according to His will, which means that what He's doing is good, that what He's doing is right. So with all of that in mind, let's hear God's word together, beginning in, verse, in chapter 1 and in verse 5 and reading through chapter 2 and in verse 5. It says, Look among the nations and see and wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own, They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress. For they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. And you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his nets and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me 
and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it, it will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he, never, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects all his own peoples. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God it stands forever. Well, quickly this morning, if you have your outline there before you, you'll see this. I want to begin uh, by reminding us where we've been, by sort of getting us up to speed on what we saw last week, because really, today's sermon is a continuation of what we saw then. We're really just picking up where we left off, and so it's going to be important that we have some of these things in our mind as background. So you'll recall that we, we started last week by considering the prophet himself, and we said that there's very little outside of this book uh, to be known about Habakkuk. And so we said there in verse 1, uh, we saw something of his call. He's a prophet, so that means uh, he is a voice. He is declaring God's word to God's people. As a prophet, he has been given an oracle or a burden. Uh, he has a message to give to God's people. And we said that that term burden is appropriate because particularly for Habakkuk, his message begins, at least, as one of complaint. In verse 2, you recall, he said, How long, how long will you allow this to continue, O God? Verse 3, essentially, he is saying, Why, God, why have you allowed these things to continue on? Habakkuk, as we said, is asking life's hard questions. And because they are hard questions that all of us, even as God's redeemed people, wrestle with, we said it was important to consider just exactly how it is that Habakkuk brings these questions to God. It's instructive to us to recognize that Habakkuk comes in some characteristic ways. First, he comes not complaining against God, but he comes complaining to God, right? Rather than fleeing to the world, rather than looking inside of himself for answers to his questions, he goes to the only source of truth. He runs to God. He takes his confusion, he takes his turmoil, he takes his anger, he takes his questions to the Lord. We said that now, in Christ, that's certainly what God desires and invites all of us to do. He is not intimidated by our questions. And He, in fact, delights to reveal Himself to us through those questions. He delights to show us just exactly who He is. And so we come and we bring our questions to God... The second major characteristic of this complaint is that it is rooted in God's character. Habakkuk isn't just throwing out accusations here willy-nilly. No, he knows full well who God is. In verse 2, he recognizes when he says, Yahweh, 
that he is the covenant-keeping God. He knows, as we read through there, that God is holy and just. He knows that, that he is faithful to his people. And so it's due to that fact, the fact that he knows God, not the opposite. It's because he knows God that he comes with his complaint. He's saying, God, all of these things seem to be contrary to who you have revealed yourself to be. Look, that's important because as we come, we need to make sure that, that our questions are in line with God's word. That our questions are in line with who God has revealed himself to be. Now, I'm going to say a lot more about that in just a moment. So let's move to the third characteristic of his complaint. It's sincere. It's sincere. That seems simple enough, but recognize that there's no sarcasm here, right? That there's no high-handedness. There's no, like, impulsiveness here by Habakkuk. If anything, he has been coming to God continually over and over and over again. That's implied when he says, how long shall I keep crying out to you? This is not the first time he has run to God. His implications is not going to be the last time he runs to God. He is genuinely seeking the face of the Lord with all of his heart. And what does Scripture say about those who seek the face of the Lord with all of their heart and their soul and their minds? He will be found, right? And so as we come to him, it is with a sincerity of heart that we come asking our hard questions. So, Habakkuk's complaint has been made. It's here before us there in verses 2 through 4. And again, the the thing that really perplexes Habakkuk and the thing that will continue to perplex him is how all of this can be consistent with who God has said he is. And to be sure, as we read through, that's a question that should be on all of our minds. He, He is complaining against God's people, and he says of God's people that the people and the courts and the kings are all corrupt, that they're all evil. He says destruction and violence go out, not out there, but in the midst of Israel, in the midst of Judah. There there is violence and destruction. There is no justice, and if justice goes forth, it's perverted. He says that the law is paralyzed. And so, for some time, this has persisted. And seemingly, God has let it slide. He he has done nothing to prevent it. And so, Habakkuk's question, once again, is, How long, O Lord? Now, before we get to God's response, which is what we want to see today, let me say one last thing that I didn't say last week that I think will help set the ground for what's to come, okay? I recognize, particularly on today, on the 4th of July, I recognize that that as we read this, it's almost impossible not to read it and begin to apply it to our lives. It's almost impossible not to read it and apply it to our nation, to apply it to America. As we've just prayed, we look out at the world and we see injustice, we see open defiance of God, people mocking him, Uh, And we, like the prophet, legitimately want to say to the Lord, how long, O Lord, will you let this continue on? How how long will the wicked continue to prosper? And look, the the Bible is full of those types of complaints against the nations. So that's a legitimate thing that we do. 
But what I want to say to you this morning is I'm not 100% sure that's a legitimate use, at least yet, at least right now at this point, of what Habakkuk is trying to say to us. Because remember, who is it that Habakkuk's complaint is with? It's not with the nations. It is with God's people. It is with Israel. It is with Judah that Habakkuk is having issues with. And so if we're to make a modern-day comparison, if we're to make a modern-day application, the application is not with America, who, by the way, is not and has never been compatible with the Old Testament Israel. The comparison, the application, is to the church who is the fulfillment and the continuation of the Old Testament people of God. And friends, how well the comparison works. If Habakkuk were here on the scene today, if he saw the state of the church right now, particularly here in America, the way that so many of us make a mockery of worship, the way so many of us twist Scripture, the way that we lack godly discipline from godly leaders, that we so all so easily just throw away God's law and His commands and, and make a, a mockery of sin, make a mockery of justice. If Habakkuk saw all of that, I think he would probably say the exact same thing that he said of Israel when he was prophesying. How long, O oh Lord, are you going to let this go on? How long are you going to let your people act in this way? If we're going to apply Habakkuk, we need to apply it not out there. We need to apply it right here. We need to apply it to the church. Now, I make that point for two major reasons. One, it should make all of this hit a lot closer to home. Yes, sometimes we are like Habakkuk, crying out about the sins of the world. But we are always a part of God's people. A people who in our time need reform. They need His law. They need to pursue after Him as fast as they can. Second reason I make that point is because knowing that it is His own people who Habakkuk is complaining against. And knowing it's His own people who God is about to speak against makes what he's about to say all the more astounding, all the more shocking it should make it shocking to us. And so, that leads us to our first point this morning. There, in verses 5 through 11, we see God's unexpected response. Unexpected response. Now, there's several things I want you to notice about what God says here. First, and this should be a great comfort to Habakkuk, and it should be a great comfort to any who struggle with their circumstances, who struggle with the realities or the uncertainties beyond your control, any who struggle with the hard questions of life. In verse 5, God begins by assuring Habakkuk that he has a plan. He assures him that though it may not be visible to the prophet, it is a plan that he has been working out, and it is one that he is even now working out. Look among the nations, he says, and see and wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your day. Friends, let's be honest. The, the simple reality is that from our perspective, 
it does so often seem that God is silent. It does, from our perspective, so often seem that, that He is MIA, maybe in the course of our lives, or maybe in the course of human history. But here, and throughout the pages of Scripture, we are reminded that that is never, in fact, the truth. Though we may not see it, though we may not recognize it, God is always at work. He always has a plan, and it is, in fact, His plan, His power, His all-encompassing wisdom that is driving every act big and small, of history. Renee has been, the, for the past few weeks, listening to a series of sermons by Alistair Begg on the book of Esther. And that's a book that we all love and we all cherish, but it's a book that, that makes the point that I'm trying to make so clearly. If you know that book, you know that never one time is the name of God mentioned in the whole thing. God's name is not mentioned in the whole book. And so people have been tempted to say, is this really a, a Christian book? Is this really a Jewish book? Is this a book that we really should be concerned with at all? Friends, here's the thing. You read through that book, and what do you see at almost every turn? God's hand. God is at work, whether it is in the life of Esther or Mordecai or Haman or the king. My favorite part of that whole little book is what motivates ultimately the king to recognize Mordecai. He can't sleep. And he's, he's trying to get himself to sleep, so he goes and gets the history of his kingdom, and he reads it to try to put himself to sleep. And it's during that that he remembers what Mordecai had done for him. My point is that even down to our inability to, to rest, even our inability to, to go to sleep at night, God is at work. God is doing great and mighty things. Friends, I want you to just take a moment, all of us, take a moment and rest in that truth. Just, just kind of take it in. I don't know what anxieties or fears or uncertainties that you walked in the door with today. And honestly, here's the truth. I can't guarantee you answers to any of those things. But what I can guarantee you from God's Word is that He has a plan. Whatever the anxieties were, whatever the cares, whatever the troubles, He's got, he's got it. He's, he's in control, and nothing, nothing will stop Him. You remember in Isaiah chapter 14 uh, and in verse 27, he, He's speaking of Assyria. But he says, For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? We turn to Job. And this is at the very end of the book, the very last chapter. God has, has spoken to Job. He has revealed himself to him as the one who made all things. And here's Job's response. I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be Thwarted. Nothing can stop God's purpose. And then I will just remind you of Colossians chapter 1. Uh, we've just came through this book. I'll remind you again in verse 16. For by him, that is Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. 
and in him all things hold together. Friends, the point right now is don't equate silence. Don't equate our inability to see or to hear with inactivity on God's part. He really and truly is at work. But it is that inability to see and to understand what God is doing that leads to the second thing that I want you to notice about God's response. He has a plan, but secondly there, notice that it is a plan that is beyond comprehension. God says it is. It is a plan that is unbelievable to Habakkuk and probably unbelievable to all of the people of Judah. Look there at the end of verse 5. He says, For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Now I want to be careful here uh, because I have made much about the fact that Habakkuk has based his complaint in God's character. And his character never changes, right? It's always the same. When we go to him, we know what we're going to find. All the, He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will always be who he has revealed himself to be. At the same time, though, we need to recognize that because we are limited and finite creatures, and because he is the eternal, infinite God, there are going to be things about him and about his acts that we simply cannot understand. Isaiah 55 and in verse 8, For my thoughts, he says, are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Now, let me ask you, does that lack of understanding, at least on our part, Does it change the surety of God's plan in any way? Does does that give us cause to worry? Well, again, from Isaiah 55, the answer is no. In the next verse, in, in verse 10, he says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God acts, and nothing and no one can stop what he will do. You know, too often we, we try to limit God, and this is where we get ourselves in trouble, but by trying to predict by, by trying to pinpoint or plan, well, this is what God's doing, or this is what he's going to do, or this is how he will act. It's he, he is not, um, he's not that sort of God that we can kind of shape and mold the way that we want him to be. We don't want a God like that. He is a God who is beyond our comprehension in so many ways. He is bigger than we are. He is more transcendent than we are. He can do what he pleases should be a great comfort to us but here and maybe rightly so it is that fact that unsettles Habakkuk so much notice there in verse 6 he says behold I am raising up the Chaldeans 
I'm raising up the, the Babylonians. Now I notice I was giving you time. I noticed there was no sharp intake of breath there. Uh, that there was no one fainted in their seat when I said the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. Uh, no one objected to God using these people. So let me try to put it in a perspective that maybe will help us understand more of what God just said to Habakkuk. I want you to imagine the worst, most violent, most ungodly nation that you can think of. Now, I'm not going to give you options because I figure you have plenty on your own. Now imagine that it is that nation that God has not only announced will be the instrument of his judgment against his people, but that it is that nation he has designed, he has raised up for that very purpose. In other words, God didn't just see the Chaldeans over here and say, hey, this looks like a good people to, to judge my nation, my people. No, he, he raised them up for this very purpose purpose, a people who are bitter and hasty, he says there, a people who are thieves, people whose army and whose violence goes beyond anything that Israel or Judah could have even imagined. They scoff at rulers. They laugh at fortresses. It's a people who are self-reliant, whose God is their own might. In other words, these are pagans of the high sort. These are about as far away from God's people as you can get. They do not know Israel's God, they do not respect him, and they do not bow before him, at least not yet. And so imagine, that's the people God plans to use. It's a tough pill to swallow, right? It's not easy to wrap our minds around exactly what in the world God is doing. It's truly unbelievable. And notice Habakkuk, he, he certainly feels that way. We've seen God's response. Secondly here, we notice Habakkuk's second difficult complaint. And we'll move through this quickly. You can almost see the prophet's wheels turning here. Like, like we're, trying to, we're almost getting a glimpse into his kind of inner thoughts there in verse 12. And he starts out on a good foot, okay? He starts out trying to be pretty rational about this whole thing. He goes back to God's character. He goes back to who God has said he is. He says, all right, God, you're everlasting. Um, you're unchangeable. Your decrees are eternal. You know, we, we see that in Psalm 102 and in verse 26. We see it in Moses as he stands before the burning, burning bush, and God says, I am. He's declaring his, his eternality. He says, okay, so if this is who you are, the eternal and changing Lord, we won't die because you have promised to keep your people. We're not going to die. And then he says, you're also sovereign, and you're a good father who disciplines and chastens his children. It's so, okay. You have raised up this nation to come and to chasten us. You have raised them up to discipline us in the way that we should go. Now look, he's on good ground with all of that. That's all absolutely true, and it's absolutely from Scripture. God is sovereign, he is everlasting, and he is a good father. We got it. But then, and I appreciate this about Habakkuk, it's like he just, he's, he's tried to be as rational as he can, but then he says, but, but Lord, these people, of all people, these people, 
they are ungodly, they are merciless, they are terrible people. They, he uses this analogy of the fishermen, and basically the idea is that Babylon has thrown its net out and it is just gathering people in, it is killing people, it is enslaving them so that Babylon might be rich, so they might eat rich food. And Habakkuk is going, God, you, there in verse 13, are of purer eyes than this. You are holy. You cannot look at wrong. How are these people, who at least in relative terms are worse than your people, how are you going to use them to judge us? Far from getting any clarity here, Habakkuk is all the more confused. And so the question there in verse 17 remains, how long, how long will you allow this to continue. He knows there's a plan. He knows it's unavoidable. He's just not sure he likes the plan. And friends, this, this is the reality for all of us. This is where we all have an issue with God's sovereignty. We know it's true, and we know it's unavoidable. We just are not 100% sure if we like the things that God's going to do. There's one thing that, that we hate more than all as sinful people. We don't like to not be in control. And, and so we see the things God's doing and we say, I'm not sure I would have done it that way. In fact, I think I'm going to do it my way. And so we act like Jonah who fled from the Lord. Or we act like David who takes matters into his own hands. Or like Elijah who cowers in fear at the people of the world. We want to do it our way. Now, to his credit, Habakkuk, he doesn't do any of those things, but I will admit to you that it's hard to decide exactly what it is that Habakkuk does in chapter 2 and in verse 1. You know, it says there, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he, God, will say to me, and I will answer concerning my complaint. Now, many commentators, they, they give Habakkuk credit here. They say that he is here patiently waiting to see what God will say. And so they say, be like Habakkuk, you know, patiently wait on the Lord. Go and find your quiet place and sit and wrestle with God and anticipate what he'll do and, and, and wait. And look, to be sure, that's good advice. And later, God is going to give that exact advice. But it seems to me that Habakkuk here is sort of in the same position that Job is in by the end of his book. He's made his stand. He's had his day in court with the Lord, as it were. And now he expects God to answer. He's almost saying to God, all right, I'm going to my watch post and I'm going to look out and I'm going to watch until you answer. At the very least, I think Habakkuk recognizes that he sort of towed the line here. That he's kind of, you know how kids will do, they'll just kind of put their toe right over the line when they're talking to us as parents. Well, he, he's kind of done that exact thing. He's kind of put his toe right over the line, and so he's going and he is putting himself behind the protective walls of the city, and he is waiting for the rebuke that he sh is sure is about to come from God the rebuke that God is bound to give him for all he has just said. Habakkuk has asked hard questions. He has pointed to hard realities. And now he is anticipating hard, maybe even hurtful 
answers. Unexpected response, second difficult complaint, then thirdly and finally notice God's gracious answer. God's gracious answer. There in verse 2, we get to what is really the, the climax of the book in the sense that, that God is going to answer Habakkuk. He's going to answer all of the people's concerns. And so he commands him. He says, write this down. Write it down plainly on tablets so that those who see it, those who run either to go and take it out or run in fear, they will know exactly what is coming. Write it down. And what is it? First, he says, I have ordained all things and all that I have revealed the good and the bad through these people it will happen Habakkuk you may not like it the people certainly will not like it there's going to be those who scoff at it there's going to be those who dismiss it claim it's all a lie and in fact there may be a, a long delay in the fulfillment of it time will pass but just as his word was true to Noah, just as it was true to, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, just as it was true to Moses and David, so too will his word hold true here. His plan to judge Judah at the hands of a foreign corrupt nation, it will come to pass. Nothing can stop it. Secondly, notice though, it'll come to pass... But his justice to all parties will be done. That begins with Judah. It is just what God is doing to Judah. But we're going to see next week, so we're not going to go any farther than this, but next week we're going to see that justice is going to be done to Babylon. They, they are puffed up. They are not upright there in verse 4. And in verse 5, he talks about their wine and all that they do. Justice is sure. Let's be honest, that, that doesn't necessarily answer Habakkuk's question, right? It doesn't necessarily answer our hard questions either. If anything, knowing that the coming judgment was sure probably only made Habakkuk dread it all the more. And it's the same with us. Friends, we recognize that being a Christian does not shield us from hard realities. It does not protect us from, from the world and all of the sinful things that go on. If anything... Christ has guaranteed us that we will endure those things. And so the question, as we try to bring this to a, a, a close, it's transformed from how long or why to how do we make it? Okay, God is in control. Okay, he, he is doing great things and justice is going to go forth. But how do, we, how do we endure? How do we persevere in the midst of all of this? when things are unclear to us, when we don't understand, how do we keep going? Verse 4, he says there in verse 4 to Habakkuk, Behold, his soul, Babylon's soul, is puffed up. It's not upright within him. But the righteous, they shall live by faith. Essentially what God is saying here is, Habakkuk, you may not understand what I'm doing. Your mind may not be able to be able to grasp it. But that's okay. Because frankly, that's not your burden. It's not your responsibility to understand all that I'm doing. No, your responsibility is simply 
and blessedly to trust in me. Trust that I am the Lord, in verse 2, that I am Yahweh. That I am the one who, at the top of your bulletin, declares that, that heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Trust that I am the everlasting one who does not change. Trust that I am holy and just. That when I said I would redeem you, redeem your lives, redeem a remnant for myself, a people, that nothing will overcome that. Nothing will change it. Your responsibility, Habakkuk, and ours as well, is not to have exhaustive understanding. But it is, and I recognize that this is not easy, but it is to live by faith. And friends, that's the message that I want to leave you with this morning. Is life easy? The answer is no. You know it. I know it. We all know it. Life is not easy. It's hard. We face difficulties and trials and tribulations all around us. We ask hard questions, legitimate hard questions. Absolutely, they are on our minds so often. And we recognize that rarely do we get answers, the answers that we want to all of those questions. So what do we do? How do we press on with, with that uncertainty? The answer which becomes the, the constant refrain of the New Testament apostles, is we live by faith. And friends, what I want you to see is that we do so with even more confidence, even more assurance than, than what Habakkuk would have been able to have in his time, in his day. Thankfully, we are on this side of all that happened. We're in the, the New Testament era, right? And so we know that in 586, Babylon did indeed overrun Judah. They absolutely destroyed the temple. They took all of God's people into exile, into captivity. But we also know that was not the end of the story. We know that eventually Babylon is overrun by Persia. And their king sends Israel back to, their, to, their, to Jerusalem, back to rebuild the temple. We know that eventually Persia is overrun by Rome. And Rome has scattered God's people everywhere. That They're not living really as God's people should have lived in that time. It's a mess. They have not heard from God in four or five hundred years at that point. And what does God do in the midst of uncertainty? In the midst of an evil nation? In the midst of a nation who hates God's people? He sends a child. He sends an infant. Born in a manger, an infant who would grow up to be judged by sinful and unholy men. Though he himself was sinless, he would be found in the hands of those who would revile him, those who would unjustly curse him, those who would spit on him and hang him on a cursed tree. They would drive nails through his hands and through his feet. And there on the cross, the Father, according to Isaiah 53, would crush His only begotten Son. You want to talk about a plan that is unbelievable. A plan that we would not believe even if we were told. God sent His Son into this world 
to be judged by people who, are, who were sinners. He himself was sinless. And God poured out his wrath on him. There's never been a more unjust act, at least from our perspective. It seems we could cry out with Habakkuk, Why, God? Why would you send this one? Why would you crush the spotless Lamb of God? Then again, in Isaiah 55, he reminds us, doesn't he? It's for our sins he was crushed. It's for our transgressions that he was pierced. Again, in a plan that was beyond what we could ever have conceived of or believed, the Father redeemed us through the sacrifice and through the resurrection of Jesus. Friends, it is He who we now put our faith in. And we do so with a hundred percent confidence. Not because we know or understand all that we see or experience. Not because the, the one, not because we are able to control the, the future. We put our faith in Him a hundred percent because He is the one who does know. He is the one who does understand. He is the one who is leading and guiding and directing every step. He is our Savior. And He died for us. And so, here's the reality. And this is is where we're going to end, okay? I promise. Though the earth may be moved, though the mountains may fall into the heart of the sea, Though everything around us may change, though all may pass away, though we may lose everything, we know that nothing can pluck us from the hand of our Savior's grip. And so the challenge is press on in faith. Press on trusting in He who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Lion and the Lamb. Press on in our precious Savior. The promise is He will not let you go. The promise is that He will return. He will make all things new. and He will get you, His people, safely home. Faith in Christ. Rest in Him, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. As we pray together, Father God, we are overwhelmed with Your love and your plan, and what you have done for us in Christ. Lord, we are undeserving of it. We never could have conceived it. We never could have planned it this way. And yet, your love is so great that you did not spare your own Son. And so, Lord, knowing that, how can you not, with him, freely give us all things? Does that mean our lives are going to be easy? Absolutely not. Does that mean we're not going to face hardships or trials along the way? No. Does that mean that that our hearts are not going to be broken? Unfortunately, they will be. We live in a fallen world. And yet the truth we cling to is that you are with us even in the darkest places. That you carry us even through the darkest places. That you never let us go. So Lord, teach our hearts to live by faith. Teach us to trust, not in what we see and not in what we hear, not even in what our own hearts say to us, but teach us to rest in every word that has proceeded from the mouth of God. Help us to rest in your word 
and help us to rest in your word made flesh, in Jesus Christ our Savior. It's in his name we ask it. Amen.